I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. If you were to walk around the Edgeville neighborhood in the 1930s, chances are you would have passed a yard containing dozens of limestone sculptures. You'd see angels, doves, and religious symbols. Before you saw him, you'd hear William Edmondson chipping away at stone in his workshop. Edmondson was a self-taught, but became the first African-American to have a solo show at MoMA in New York City. Today, he is regarded as one of Nashville's most important artists. Today, we'll explore his legacy with artists, historians, and members of the Edge Hill community. But first, we're going to hear about two local artists who are being highlighted on our sister station, WNXP. And today is the perfect day to learn more about trailblazing Nashville hip-hop artist Tin Gent. That's because he just dropped his new single called Get Down. Everybody better get down in this place. Everybody better get down in this place. Better get down in this place. Better get out of my way. I'm getting a domain. Yeah, lodging a domain. Letters in Romaine. But I do what I want to do. Taking the domain. Now they getting a the nomade. It made me uncomfortable. Got a pay the price. Pay the bill. Eat just worse than Mr. Huxtable. Get your life at the table. Need meals. I ain't talking about money. I'm talking lunchables. Was it Auntie Neck chillin' Jet in a quill? Now we your private parties or herbs and quill. Served on silver, tied up by a white meal. That's Get Down from Tin Gent. This new single is his first since 2020, and Gent is WNXP's Nashville Artist of the Month for October. The station's been sharing his work all this month and just published a full-length profile of him this morning. Here to talk about Gent's music and the arc of his career is Nashville Public Radio senior music writer Julie Height. Julie, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us. So, you know, there are a lot of artists worthy of attention. Tell me what stands out about Tim Gent that made you want to go deeper into his work. Well, I have had the privilege of of watching him evolve up close for uh, probably about half of his journey. I first interviewed him back in 2017, 2018, after he moved to Nashville and he's always had he's always had this drive to participate meaningfully in community as part of collectives among his peers and also to really find his way to build a career in Nashville and make it sustainable, make inroads. So I've been watching that building. And also, I mean, in the in the track you just heard, you know, there there's a, that line about Lunchables. Like that, that's a reference to, you know, realities of his life being a parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he has he's always had in his lyrics and his songwriting a mix of engaging with the world he sees around him, how he experiences it. I mean, there's fun stuff in there, too. He delivers bangers, but he also does a lot of thoughtful writing and talking about parenthood and things that trouble him in the world. So all of those things have made me want to watch closely. Now, you actually got Jen to do a lot of reflecting on his early years and early music. What did he share with you? Yeah, he was he was very up for reflecting, which I don't take for granted. Not every artist is willing to really go there. And I asked him, you know, when you listen back to your first real mixtape from 2015, what do you hear? And he was talking about how on the one hand, he he hears the drive. He hears not quite desperation, but intensity of someone who, you know, he was working in a call center at the time. He was about to become a dad. And he just 
felt the need to take his music to the next level. But on the on the other hand, he talked about that he realized when he listens back that he was not there yet with his with his vocal style or how he used his voice at the time. You know, he talked about not being satisfied yet and feeling like he needed to grow, which he did after that. Let's take a listen to a clip. I was laser focused on attempting to catapult my career forward. I knew that my son was about to be born, but I know that I wasn't that comfortable with my voice. I hated my voice back then, actually. (laughs) I was just always working to figure it out. All right. So bring us forward a bit to 2020. What was the next? That was a really big milestone year for him. What stands out to you about that year? I mean, there are a couple of things that really stand out about Tim Gent's 2020. One was that he released what was his most fully formed project to date called In Every Fall. And he did a lot more melodic work. I mean, singing and melodic rapping. And it was a very, you know, emotionally present observational project from him. Sharp perspective. And at the same time, that was the year that he got a publishing deal with Prescription Songs, which was really a landmark thing for artists, music makers working in hip-hop in Nashville. I mean, that is not something that just has happened for many for many music makers, for many rappers, producers, songwriters in hip-hop or R&B in Nashville. So that was, that was a huge thing that began opening new avenues of collaboration and building connections for him. All right, so how is he bringing all this to bear in his new music that he's putting out? Well, I mean, he's done a lot of sessions with a lot of people at this point in time. He's walked into rooms with strangers many, many times and really had to work on sharpening his approach to writing hooks and understanding song structure and being able to improvise, be creative under pressure in collaboration, that kind of thing. So he has really, really sharpened his chops. And now he's bringing that back to the range of singles that he is preparing to release. Least. I mean, I've gotten to hear more than the one that you just played. Okay. But, uh, you know, so there, there are more coming. But now he is showcasing different sides of what he can do artistically, stylistically, different flows, different tones, different points of view. He told you a little story about the song that we opened the segment with, Get Down. Let's hear it now. It's so funny. Uh, I was just introduced to someone by one of my homies and they were like, yo, this is Tim Jean. You know, if you ever want to like just relax and sit back, you know, you can play his music. And because of where I am now, I was just like, you know, that's not really a good representation of what I got going on right now. You know, I don't want just that. You can come to me for multiple vibrations if you want to have fun, if you want to hop in the car and let your top down, if you want to be in the club, you know, I want to bring more of that to who Tim Gent is. And I feel like this song is a step in that direction because it's totally out of the norm of what I feel like people are used to hearing me for. So change is good. You know, that's pretty cool that he's opening and broadening his perspective and his vision. He isn't the only local artist that you're shining a light on this week, but they're also in a very different place in her career. You're highlighting the first ever project from someone who's been in the city for only just about a year, right? 
That is true. Her name is Ramy, and her debut project is called Partly Cloudy. And she is from a Jamaican family. She started her life in Canada and then grew up most of her uh, formative years she spent in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And then she hasn't been here very long. But, I mean, she grew up in a household where they listened to all kinds of popular music. But her parents really did have a great love of reggae and dance hall. And that was something that she was that she was exposed to and learned too that her dad actually grew up with Bob Marley and mm. went fishing with Bob Marley and that kind of thing. So it is it is something that had many different layers of meaning. And she told me that she, in listening to the rhythms of reggae and dance hall, she learned and internalized rhythmic sophistication herself that now comes to play in her songwriting and her vocal patterns. Let's get a feel for her sound. This is Overcompensate from Nashville artist Ramey. I'm not gonna let this information turn me down. All that guilt built up inside is driving you around. Just like the way I had you feeling in the days of tolerance was like now it's a tragedy that happened. Don't do diffidence behind the actions. That's a cut from Ramey, whose debut, Partly Cloudy, is the record of the week selection from WNXP. So, Julie, you got to talk to Ramey about this track. What did she share? Yeah, she... She had a nugget of a song idea as a voice memo. And then when she went to the studio of A.B. Eastwood to actually flesh that out and work on it and started talking about the feel that she wanted, he's the one that came up with that polyrhythmic clapping pattern. And, you know, that that in contrast with the guitar strumming pattern actually ended up giving her a little bit gesturing a little bit toward her roots in her reggae influences, dance hall influences in its rhythmic sophistication. So that's a great showcase of that. And I think it's also, it gives you a little taste of where she's coming from as a songwriter and an artist who just really kind of ruminates and takes in the vibe, takes in her environment. And that's that's sort of where she's coming from. You feel the the reflection. It's, it's laid back. It's mm. composed. So that's Ramey. We've also been talking about Tim Gent. Before you go, I understand that there's a connective thread between both of these artists that runs through a local producer. Can you connect this web for us? That is true. I just I just said his name. His name is A.B. Eastwood. He is a former Nashville Artist of the Month, by the way, and he is very close as a music maker and comrade and colleague to Tim Gent. They're in, you know, they run in the same circles. They're in a, in a collective together, and they make quite a bit of music together. A.B. Eastwood actually was in, in here, in the building, mm -hmm. uh, within the last couple of weeks, DJing for Tim Gent when he filmed a live session. And A.B. was the co-writer and producer on Ramey's project. So, yeah, he's he's a linchpin in so many ways, working with so many artists in Nashville. I see a WNXP Artist of the Month compilation album coming soon. Hey, okay, I just let's wanna, do it. I just want to put that out there <laughs> in the ethers. Julie Height is senior music writer covering artists of the industry for WNXP and WPLN. Julie, as always, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the life and impact of William Edmondson, the self-taught sculptor who was one of our city's most important artists. Has William Edmondson's work inspired you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today we are exploring the legacy of sculptor William Edmondson. The self-taught artist began working with the hammer and chisel after he got a calling from God. His work garnered recognition from the art world, and he eventually became the first African-American artist to have a solo expedition at the Museum of Modern Art but he preferred to remain at his home in Edge Hill and to keep fulfilling his vision. Edmondson's work still resonates today with artists all over the world. My next guests are here to help us celebrate and understand who William Edmondson was and why he remains influential. Dr. LaRotha Williams is a professor of African-American arts and public history at TSU. Dr. Williams, good to see you again. Hey, thanks for having me. Michael McBride is a painter and professor of art at TSU. Michael, welcome to This Thank Is you. Nashville. Thank you. It's Glad really to great to have you both here. I'm excited for this conversation today. You know, William Edmondson, he created most of his art in his yard during the 1930s. Dr. Lee, can, can you paint us a picture, sorry for the pun, of what Nashville was like at that time? Now, during the 30s, Nashville is experiencing the Great Depression. We're trying to work our way through that. But it's also the height of Jim Crow segregation. Um, if one were to visit the city at the, at the time, you'd see um, clear differences in how blacks and whites in the city lived. Um, the part of Nashville where Edmondson grew up, um, you know, you had working class black people there, but um, by any definition, it was a poor part of town. Um, for African Americans, it was a city. It was a city of transitions, because some were doing very, very well. You know, during the '30s, is the time when Jefferson Street really starts to jump. North Nashville really starts to hop. Mm. Um, matter of fact, there's um, there's a Nashville Cotton Club that opens up on Scoville Street. But by the same token, close to that spot where people would go and have fun on Sundays, he had some of the most extreme poverty. As far as the black intellectual life here, he had three major universities, and they're really starting to take off. Although Fisk was opened up in 1866, it, 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 it begins in 1866. Um, by the 1930s, TSU is finding its rhythm. Mm -hmm. Then at the same time, Meharry Medical College has moved to North Nashville, and it's starting to do its thing. So it was a city of contrasts for African Americans. It was um, it was an interesting time to live here. I imagine, you know, he lived in the Edgeville neighborhood. That's an important historical neighborhood, right? Yes, 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 it is. Um, and I, when I talk about Edgehill, I. I have to remember that it is one of the oldest of all of the neighborhoods here in this city because you had enslaved black people living out there before it develops into what it becomes. Um, 
its population is buttressed during the the period of the Civil War by a contraband camp that forms in the shadow of Fort Negley. A lot of those folks that came to Nashville seeking freedom end up in this camp, and they ultimately migrate to Edgehill. But here's here's the thing that's really important. Um, we must be mindful that they did not come here empty-handed. They brought their culture, how they define freedom. So, and all of that figures into the legacy of Edmondson. Now, Michael, describe Edmondson's work for us. Well, Edmondson's work, I would say, I called it a simple, uh, naive sophistication. And what I mean by that is that his imagery and the work that he was doing was very simplistic in form, almost childlike. But the sophistication of it was is that all the uh, parts were in proportion. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a big head and a small arm and thing. But so that's why I called it that. And I also, this is all personal in the way I see it. I also attended to African art based in the terms of uh, geometric forms flatness, even though it's three-dimensional, which you will see in a lot of sculptures, you know, from from Africa, because that's how Picasso got his whole cubism is based off looking at African forms that are flat in nature, even though they're three-dimensional, and try to transpose that onto a two-dimensional surface. Now, looking at pictures, I noticed that it was just very, very smooth. All the lines seemed to be connected and everything. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Very, uh, and the fact, and I don't think William considered himself an artist. Hmm. I think he just did what I would call divine. He saw visions and that his work came from that and just the simplest of form of how he saw it. What kind of pieces was he making? I mean, he did a piece called Adam and Eve, and he did um, birds. He did, I mean, angels. Um, and because you know he did grave stones, headstones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just those images like that. I don't think he really had a certain particular genre. I think it was just about, you know, life, mm-hmm. you know, all things big and small. Now, you mentioned Picasso. Did Edmondson's work really match the established styles that the art world was into at the time? Um, well, I, well, what happened is that you had, I think there were some Vanderbilt professors or somebody that saw his work, and that's how he got that show. I think they recognized this simplicity and this form and this whole childlike, naive work, untrained, untaught, you know, non-academic work that carried a strong sense of design Mm -hmm. with it. And so I think that's how that happened, you know, in that way, because that's probably one of the reasons he never left Edge here, because a lot of artists who gotten started and feel that they're artists, they end up, they go to New York, they go to Chicago, they leave. But I don't think he ever looked at that. I think it was just a gift that he felt that he had, and he just had to produce, and it wasn't about money. It wasn't about anything. It's just that God has given me this, and this is what I see, so this is what I'm supposed to do. 
You know, I like what you said and how you called it this childlike sense of design, because to me that reflects as a purity in it. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what the people that start showing the work, you know, show that, you know, that that was the exciting thing about it. When you look at his work, I don't know if you've ever actually, you know, seen the work, but I've seen a lot of his work in the real. And when you really look at it, you know, as a trained artist and everything, you look at it, you really get fascinated with some of the, you know, things that he did. Mm. Now, Dr. Williams, you wrote an essay for the Edmondson exhibit catalog at Cheekwood, and you say that Edmondson, quote, leans heavily on themes and culture of his forebears. Can you talk about that? Um, in looking at some of the um, sculptures that he made, one of the things that really jump out at me, are, you know, like these small animals, like the rabbits and the birds and so forth. And and those, when we look at those animals, those animals are some of the most vulnerable animals in nature. So you don't really see an old rabbit unless that rabbit is kind of crafty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that reminded me of the sort of trickster figure that we have in African-American literature that is using your mind, using your intellect in order to survive this 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 insane experience that you are you are experiencing. But also as I looked at it, I thought at his work, I thought about grieving, right? And how, you know, just the way we grieve the loss of loved ones during enslavement was was controlled. That is, we didn't have really um control over how we process grief. But now what he's doing, and this speaks a little bit to the title of the, the, the essay, what he's doing is he's taking things that the city has refused, that the city doesn't want, that they have no use for, and he's creating something beautiful out of it. Mm-hmm. And we're mindful that they're headstones, but headstones are for the living, right? No dead person has ever seen their headstones. Yeah. But these stones become objects of memory, objects of affirmation and inspiration in in many ways. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the work of renowned sculptor William Edmondson. My next guest is producing a documentary on the life and legacy of William Edmondson. Mark Slicker, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. It's a pleasure. So, so Mark, you've been working on your film called Chipping Away. L- let's listen to a little bit of that. Here's a scene where some relatives are describing his property. My name is Merritt Copeland. I am uh, 91 years old. William Emerson was my great uncle, and William uh, had a good-sized house. He worked hard. He had a very wide front yard, and it was filled with little statues that were maybe halfway up to my knee, and it was like a a Disneyland. Everywhere you looked, there were these little creatures, animals, angels, characters out of the Bible. And I loved to go and play in the yard where all the different statues were. It was fun. The yard was cluttered. He had a yard full of it. All back to 
he had to shed in the back, and the yard just was full. It had a magical, it had a spiritual, it had an otherworldly look to it. That does sound really magical. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, what surprised you as you were interviewing people for your film? I was, I was surprised that many of the people that I spoke with, um, some of whom had their own prominent careers, uh, John Siegenthaler, the late John Siegenthaler was an interviewee, uh, other people who had encountered Edmondson who were still with us, who... Um, had never been asked about him. Hmm. And I think the degree to which he had been forgotten gave me the impetus to really lean into finding as many people who could describe a first-person experience uh, or who could describe the Edge Hill neighborhood in a way that brings it to life and that can um, bring us closer to the experience of the spiritual core and uh, uh, the, the importance of his work and his and full appreciation of William as an artist. Um, Michael talked about the simplicity, the almost childlike qualities about his work. And, and if you have ever seen it, Cheekwood has some, uh, you, um, you definitely get that sense, the smoothness, the, the inviting of touch, uh, all of that. But there is also that sophistication and the label childlike can be limiting. And that's what happened with William was that he had this moment in the sun, 1937 at the Museum of Modern Art. He continued to work until the end of his life in 1951. Now, it should be said, William didn't start until he was almost 60 years old. Mm -hmm. So he came to the attention of the Museum of Modern Art only five years into his artistic career. He made all that amazing work, invented his own sculptural language in that period of time. But by 1951, the art world had cast him aside, and it was decades before anyone in Nashville, much less in the country, started paying attention to him again. Why did you decide to make this piece, and and what do you want people to learn from watching your film? Well, one of the reasons I made the piece was because I took up... uh, At nearly 60 years old, I took up sculpting, and I was looking for kind of a a mentor, a teacher, uh, and I learned that Alan LaCroix, I developed a little bit of a relationship with Alan LaCroix, who is a prominent sculptor in town, and learned that he looked at Edmondson as his inspiration. So my interest in Edmondson started as an artist who was just taking up sculpture myself, But because my day job is freelance filmmaker, Mm -hmm. it became apparent that this was a story that hadn't been told, that needed to be told, and that I was in a position to tell. And I found myself feeling a part of that stream of legacy and calling. Um, I I hate to sound too deep and woo-woo, but I've became a part of it. I, I, it. It became my calling, too. I'm, I was put here to help tell his story, not to make it my story, but to be a vehicle to help tell his. Deepness in the woo-woo is always welcomed here <laughs> at This Is Nashville. Now, Michael, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, Mark just mentioned how he was forgotten and cast right. aside right. by the art world. Right. 
that seems to be a common thing for artists, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, the one, especially when you speak of African-American artists, because they still have us separated from the mainstream. We don't fit into the mainstream of the art world. They still haven't put us in. Mm -hmm. You know, we still are separated in that sense. And as long as that happens, that's the kind of thing that goes. Some of us who have been accepted into the mainstream, we've been, our work has been accepted into the mainstream because it's comfortable. Yeah. Okay. Mm hmm. So, you know, we can deal with that. It's comfortable. The main, It's comfortable for the mainstream. But when you really look at African-American art and that whole thing, we're great storytellers because we have a lot to say because of our life experiences and everything. So our work becomes very powerful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the mainstream patrons and people can't handle that. I understand what you're saying. It's like um, instead of being a reputable artist, it's the reputable African-American artist. Right. Always categorized in that box. Exactly. So people look at you initially as that, telling these stories of resilience or, right. or fighting instead against Instead of looking at you as an artist first mm -hmm. who just happened to be African-American. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, Dr. Williams, you also write in your essay that his work is representative of the African-American experience. We were kind of just talking about that. What do you mean? Um, taking nothing and making something extraordinary out of it. Mm. Um, when I look at Nashville's history, um, look at African Americans here, you know, we've had some geniuses to come through here. You had Du Bois and all those folks that graduated from Fisk and TSU and, 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 Meharry, but you start thinking about who geniuses that remain behind. I can think of three that I talk about all the time. These are three that I must talk about in my history classes, right? I will, I will um, talk about Charles Victor Roman, who was a professor at Meharry, Fisk, and TSU at the same time. Yeah. I'll talk about um, Dr. Josie Wells, a Meharry grad who um, set up a doctor shop, um, set up an office right there on 4th and Charlotte, the only black woman to have an only woman to have an office downtown. But then when we start thinking about other people, we, we, we um, sometimes we stumble. But William Edmondson was one of those geniuses. Um, in my class, when I talk about autodidacts, that is people that were self-taught and going to do big things, you know, there's Marcus Garvey and then there's William Edmondson. Mm -hmm. But Edmondson is a bit more peculiar, though, right? Because he didn't get started until his 60s, until he received what he felt was divine revelation. And then he starts to move. It's like a lesson in it's never too late to start something and listen to that creative voice or whatever's driving you. Right. And then, then and this kind of speaks to what Michael was mentioning, um, just how oftentimes black genius has to 
fight to get recognition. And oftentimes it's not even recognized until you receive validations from some white institution. Mm-hmm. Edmondson was great for black folks long before those Vanderbilt professors came through and maybe heard something tapping and say, okay, let's check out what's going on on 14th. And then they see this man covered in, in dust. He was bad before then. Mm-hmm. That is Dr. LaRotha Williams, professor of African-American studies and public history at TSU. He was joined by artist and TSU professor Michael McBride. I want to thank you both for being with us today. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, we'll talk with community leaders about this weekend's festival in Edge Hill that was created to honor the legacy of William Edmondson. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. We've been hearing about the life and work of William Edmondson, the self-taught sculptor whose work is known all around the world. Edmondson lived in the Edgeville, Edge Hill neighborhood, and the land where his home once stood is still there. Tomorrow, the neighborhood will host the first William Edmondson Arts and Culture Festival. My next guests have been working to preserve William Edmondson's legacy. Brenda Morrow is the president of the Friends of the Edmondson Home Site, Parks and Gardens. She holds about 100 more titles, highlighting all the work she does there. I think it's fair to say that she is the matriarch of Edge Hill. Brenda, thank you so much for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it was wonderful listening to all my old friends over there. <laughs> Absolutely a pleasure. Hello, to... all you guys. I love you guys. I'm, they're very happy. We're happy to have you with us. Now, you know, William Edmondson, he worked at his home in Edge Hill, as we heard. These are stories of people. There are stories of people walking by in his yard, seeing dozens of his sculptures. But the site where his home once stood was almost sold by the city in 2018. Now, now, Brenda, I understand that you helped fight that sale. What did you do? Well, um, to help fight that sale, I had to learn about it. I didn't know anything about it until like a week, maybe a week and a half before it was going uh, up for a vote. Um, uh, Young Mr. Mark and young Miss Gloria McKissick came by the community garden, and they asked me if I was aware of it, and I said no. And I said, so if Metro, if the mayor is successful in putting this on the budget, uh, on the uh, on sale to make up a budget deficit for Metro schools, that means all this property will go away. I mean, not only the park, but the garden, because it also sits on what has, uh, what people think is Metro school property. So what we did was uh, try to mobilize people in the community. We got... Uh, people together at uh, Progressive Church uh, to help people know about the what was coming up and know about what the plans of government was getting ready to do. And everybody said, no, uh, we can't let this happen because included in that spot is an uh, area where uh, um, 
MDHA and Organized Neighbors of Edge Hill got a community development block grant. And there was a park there. There was a, a walking trail. There was uh, stuff like that that would go away that the residents used. So actually... What happened in the end results was uh, collecting over 2,000 signatures, going to budget and finance committee meetings, going to um, uh, Metro Council meetings, you know, just uh, getting people together, putting them on buses, putting them in cars and taking them down and saying, no, you cannot take this history from us. Now, you know, it's amazing that you learned out, you learned about this man. And then the very next week you go to action to preserve his legacy what were you yes. thinking? What came across your mind as you learned more about William Edmondson? What came across my mind was the fact was uh, here's a person. The first thing, yeah, the first thing, hi, guys. The first thing was the fact that here comes Miss Gloria. Gloria McKissick sits on the board for the Organized Neighbors of Edge Hill. Here she come in the garden, and here she come with this white guy. So I get to meet the white guy, and he tells me about everything that's going on with the uh, them trying to sell the property. He tells me about a film that he's a video, uh, a thing that he's doing uh, to preserve the history of William Edmondson, and on down through the weeks, I learn about the fact that. Uh, uh, young Mr. Edmondson had also did headstones. He did animals. I heard stories about kids coming and watching him uh, uh, doing his work and playing on the uh, different uh, uh, stones that he had over there. And it was like, to me, all the children in this community, we shouldn't, that's right across the street from Edge Hill Apartments uh, public housing site. And um, there are kids in the community that know nothing about William Edmondson. So if there's a chance for us to tell the story so they will know and their children will know, then that's what went across my mind. We've got to get this out to everybody. Mm -hmm. People need to know exactly who this man was, what he represents for the community, and all the different things that we're doing to preserve that. The fact that well, we came together, even though Metro Schools wanted to sell the property, uh, the William Emerson home site entered into a partnership with them. and we raised over $80,000 to put a new playground there. That's, we that's, got permission to paint the basketball court a beautiful, bright, vibrant green mm-hmm. so people can see it and come to it. We got permission to plant uh, 60 trees. That's, uh, that's really wonderful, everything y'all do. And I want to move on to documentary filmmaker Mark Schlicker. Now, he's, okay. he's still with us. Now, Mark, what are you hoping to do? on the home site for William Edmondson? Well, as Brenda mentioned, the first thing that we did was to uh, advocate to protect the site. And once we protect it, the next steps are to preserve it and to enhance it. And to that end, we formed a nonprofit, uh, Gloria McKissick, uh, Brenda Morrow, myself, and several other community members and those who are interested in William Edmondson and we got back to the community and said, how, how shall we best honor William's legacy and, and cement his memory uh, even as Nashville continues to change? And we need to protect the property itself 
number one. And when it comes to enhancing, in the 1950s, the, uh, uh, the Murrell Elementary School was built. It was built as uh, a segregated black elementary school for the children, uh, primarily the children of the Edge Hill Homes, the projects. Um, and yet even kids, and I've talked to people, generations of students who went through that school who weren't taught about William. And the, the place where his home and his workshop stood are literally right next to the school underneath that vibrant green basketball court. Mm-hmm. The, the two um, tangible manifestations of his having lived there for uh, almost 30 years are two beautiful hundred-year-old oak trees that he planted in the 1920s that still stand at the curb. And so we, we erected a historic marker, a state historic marker. We've gotten recognition for those historic trees. And then the next step is to, as, the, as people like to say, to activate the space, to, to have events in the space, in the park, to introduce Nashville to William's story more broadly, uh, and to introduce them to this beautiful jewel of a neighborhood park. And then third, to enhance it, we went to the neighborhood and created the Higher Vision Master Plan proposal, which is a proposal that would replace the school, which is no longer being used for a school, to replace it with a William Edmondson Library Cultural Arts Center uh, with performing art space and uh, uh, art education spaces, and to develop the actual site where he worked so that people can sit and breathe the air and take in that spiritual uh, experience of his creativity that these beautiful, amazing sculptures were made right here on this spot. To hear more about that vision, I'd like to bring in my next guest. Georgianne Matthews is an architect and urban planner who grew up in Edge Hill. Welcome to This is Nashville. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure to have you with us. Now, you created a 3D rendering of the proposed space. What are some of the main features? Uh, some of the main features, and so I'm just going to um, recollect what Mark said and what Brenda talked about in terms of the space being, number one, a community space adjacent to the neighborhood, um, a housing um, development that has lots of young people, and being the site of William Edmondson's house itself. Uh, and so the design um, takes you on an experience or a journey through those two trees hmm. as the gateway and the threshold. And so you move across a textured stone path that goes over a clear pool, right, that children can wade in and sort of ascend stairs into this library and cultural arts center. So the entire experience is designed to educate you on William Edmondson to be a placemaker and a sense of, uh, of a community space um, through this kind of movement into the library. Um, as you get into the library, there's an undulating wave wall that will have placards commemorating those residents of Edge Hill who were considered contraband or ex-slaves who built the community. Um, the story will then unfold with artwork that is being done by um, older people in the community, current students, and it's sort of this continuation of the history through art and storytelling 
the end of that wave wall then opens up into the cultural arts center. And that's where we hope to kind of continue to train students in the sculptural arts, perhaps in welding, um, other things that they can use to get jobs, but also to be a meeting and performance space for everyone in the community, regardless of age. Now, you live in D.C. I do. But you grew up in Edge Hill, right? I did not grow up in Edge Hill. Um, I have a long family tradition in the neighborhood off of 12th South, which is close to Edge Hill. My grandmother, my aunties, my cousins, I spent every summer in Nashville. And when I found myself divorced with two babies under the age of three, I came to Nashville looking for a new start. I went to the Edge Hill community. It was a half a mile from my grandmother's house. And there I talked to the grandmothers in the community and I said, can I find a house here? And I did because it was that kind of place mm-hmm. where someone helped me actually get into a house, which I think I bought with a, a credit card as a down payment. And an older woman who wanted to sell her house said, baby, I'm going to help you out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take back a mortgage for you. Um, and that was the only way I, I could start a place for my children at the time. I lived in Edge Hill for eight years. I worked for Moody Nolan Architecture Firm, um, which is in downtown Nashville. What makes Edge Hill so important and special to you? Edge Hill is important and special because of my family connection, because of how it embraced me, but also because of its fabric of history. And it's an example of close-in urban neighborhoods that are close to downtowns that are being gentrified. Um, And in addition to the people being displaced, the culture is being lost. Um, It's just a textbook example for what's happening. And in working with Edge Hill Coalition, uh, Miss Brenda, I hope to get to see you tomorrow. Um, The McKissick family who are Um, a legacy black architecture family, Um, people like Mark, my mother's on the Edge Hill Coalition. Um, What does it mean to me? It means to be able to tell their stories through architecture and to honor um, my experience here. Now, Brenda, how has the community responded to the efforts to preserve William Edmondson's legacy? The, the, The community has responded quite beautifully. Whenever we do an event or have activities, we also have information about the William Edmondson home site. We have residents who are actually, oh my goodness, they're like, thank you guys for putting that new play park there. Thank you guys for planting the trees. And I want my family member to have a plaque on one of those trees. I mean, it's it's been awesome. Now, Mark, why why is it important to you that this space feature an art center for the community? The community, well, it's not what I want. It's what the community wants. Mm-hmm. It's what Nashville wants and what the art community larger wants. It's important to just remind ourselves that William Edmondson is a nationally important artist. He is Nashville's most important historic artist and is considered the foremost self-taught sculpture of the 20th century by scholars. This is a legacy that needs to be uh, promoted and maintained, and you do it through a living legacy. So you build structures that people can live their lives in in important ways, and you build green space that people can share a community, and you hold events like our event tomorrow, the William Edmondson Arts and Culture Festival, that, that, uh, that celebrate art um, William's work was about remembrance, both his tombstones and he, he carved uh, community heroes, teachers, preachers, uh, uh, attorneys. Um, 
And and we're celebrating community heroes with our Arboretum uh, medallions. We're inducting Moses McKissick and D. Ford Bailey mm. and members of the Adkins family, a, a very prominent uh, family, and Reverend Dick Allison as part of our ongoing programming tomorrow in the park. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. And it's a celebration that all of Nashville is invited to. Brenda, give us the lowdown on what we can see when people go to the William Edmondson Arts and Culture Festival tomorrow. What you will see will be an abundance of people who have signed up and registered and want to be a part of this very, uh, uh, what I call, important Ferris festival in the Edge Hill community. You will see uh, people that uh, make their own jewelry. You will see people that make, um, uh, you'll see booths with people who have gotten out of prison and started their own programs, uh, a program called We Stay Free, uh, that uh, a young man, Mr. Twilight, he runs that. Uh, there's um You'll see booths from community organizations like Organized Neighbors of Edge Hill, like Salama Urban Ministries, and, and, and people like that. But most important, you are going to see uh, a community coming together. You'll see uh, photo ops where uh, people can actually, at no charge, uh, take photos. Uh, you will see food trucks. I think we've got at least, I think, six food trucks. You will see uh, people from the Nashville Symphony having what we call a petting zoo, an instrument petting zoo, hmm. where the young people learn about different instruments. Um, it's just so much. You guys, I just need y'all to put out that information and keep advertising so people will come. But most of all, you're going to see love. That's gonna... You're going to see people get to talk about uh, what the William Edmondson home site means to them. You're going to uh, get to hear uh, people from the community. We want to give them a chance to talk about how they felt when... Um, it is uh, It is Ms. all about love. Miss Brenda, I got to stop you there. That is Miss Brenda Morrow. Yeah, because you know I will talk. Thank you, baby. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. The matriarch <laughs> of Edge Hill. She was joined by architect Georgianne Matthews and documentary filmmaker Mark Schlicker. I want to thank you all for this amazing conversation. Thanks to everybody who tuned in this hour. Monday is Halloween. Get ready for some Nashville ghost stories. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Anna Gallegos-Cannon is our digital lead. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Andrea Tudhope is our executive producer. Feel better, feel better, feel better. Shout out to Tori Hoover, our intern and the masterminds behind our theme music, Laurent and Amir Blade. Special thanks to Joyce Searcy. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. You know the deal. Hit us up on Instagram. Do what you want. Let us know how you feel. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. Be good to each other. <laughs>